0: We're going to finish up chapter 9. Um, and I wanted to give you a little tidbit that I realized as I was preparing this week's lesson. And that is that the very first verse of chapter 9 refers to King Darius, who is the king that we're not sure, you know, who exactly he was. But the phrase used about him is that he was made king. And that is a very unusual way to put it if you're a conqueror you know if if he's cyrus that would be a very strange way to put what happened and so um that is a verse that many scholars point to and say that he must have been an appointee of cyrus to to rule over to rule over babylon we're in daniel chapter 9 verse 25 we're going into what is known as bless you as the prophecy of the 70 weeks and this prophecy is one of the most important in Scripture. It leads us directly into the following prophecy, which is in chapters 9, 10, I mean 10, 11, and 12, which is the last prophecy in the book of Daniel. So we have this one that kind of sets the framework, and then we have one more, and we're finished with Daniel. Verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. We talked about the fact that weeks are years in this context, most likely years. And what we're looking at then is a period of sets of years. So there will be a set of seven years and a set of 62 sets of seven years all right that he's talking about and then there's one left over that is that would be the 70th so this verse is just talking about the first 69 sets of seven so what we want to do is take a look at when the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem with went out because that's the beginning of the counting of those years well If you remember our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, there were several decrees issued during that time frame. And if you look at your uh, scripture references, one of the one of the ones that we see a decree in is in the very first of Ezra, Ezra chapter one, verse one through three, where it says that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So that would have been um, in exactly the same year that Daniel is having this vision and doing that prayer. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a proclamation was sent through the kingdom in writing and Cyrus said that God has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Is that a decree to rebuild Jerusalem or is that just a decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? The way that it worked was when this decree was issued, the exiles were allowed to leave immediately. So they left in that first year. And they got the altar built within the first two years. So so they built the altar in in 537 B.C. They started the work on the temple in the next year, which was 536 B.C. And then they worked on the temple for the next six years. Then there was like this 10-year gap. Because after Cyrus died, his son ordered that they stop building the temple because there were some people in the area that were pr- protesting and said you you realize that if you re- let them rebuild they're troublemakers and they've always been troublemakers and you go look at history and you'll find out they're troublemakers and sure enough the king looked at history and he found out they were troublemakers so he told them to stop but then he came out of power the next king came into power and under that king's reign reigned, the Jews made an appeal, said, go back and look at the at the decrees of Cyrus. Cyrus issued a decree saying we could rebuild the temple. And so sure enough, King Darius, this was King Darius at the time, uh, issued a decree. This is in Ezra 6, verse 1 through 8. A search was made in the archives. A scroll was found, and there was written on it as follows. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let its foundations be retained. Its height being 60 cubits, its width being 60 cubits, and it goes on with the dimensions of the temple. So to me, this was a reconfirmation of that same decree, but it gets even more specific. It's about the temple. You can build it 60 by 60 and, you know. Well, the work was restarted in 520 B.C., and they finished the temple four years later in 516 B.C. Then there's this really long gap of 72 years where they really didn't do much. Okay, um, they, The rest of Jerusalem just continued to lay in ruins. So they had the temple, they had the altar, and they had the temple, but they let Jerusalem just lay around. And it's because Jerusalem was in such terrible shape that nehemiah got distressed he some jews came to babylon they were visiting and nehemiah overheard them talking about jerusalem and he asked them about it and they said oh yeah it's a wreck so nehemiah was really upset well you remember he had the job as cupbearer to the king right after he had that conversation he had to go wait on the king and the king said nehemiah what's wrong with you you look really depressed and nehemiah said I am depressed. I just found out that Jerusalem is just a pile of rubble. And then Nehemiah says a quick prayer in his head. says, God, please give me the right words to say. And then he says, King Darius, would you let me go back and rebuild Jerusalem? king says, sure. (laughs) They must have been on friendly terms and had respect for each other. Yeah, yeah but he's giving him like a sabbatical from his job, you know. No matter how friendly you are with your boss, that's a big deal. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right? It came about in the month Nisan, which is the the first year of the Jewish calendar, the the first year month of the year in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. The king asked him how long will it take you to get this done? He and so Nehemiah gave him a particular time frame. And, and then, in verse seven, Nehemiah says, "If it please the king, let letters be given to me so that I can pass through all your lands and that authorize me to um, get the timber for the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go." And the king granted these letters to him. That is the only record we have of a decree being issued authorizing the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now clearly they were doing some kind of rebuilding during this time frame, but it couldn't have been much or or the city wouldn't have been in a rubble. So what we know is that the decree that starts the running of the 70 weeks, 70 sets of years, begins in the month of Nisan, the first month of the year, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes of Persia. That, we know from historical records, would have been March or April of 445 B.C. So you can just take that to the bank. The 77s start there. The first seven sevens, the first 49 years, if you measure 49 years from 445 forward, puts you at 395 or 396 B.C., somewhere around in there. Okay. Now remember, when you start counting this stuff, to take all the dates with a little grain of salt because the calendars weren't, just simply weren't set. So it may say in scripture it was such and such day. And, they, and their calendar could have been off three or four or ten days, you know, depending on where you were in the cycle. So you, you just can't get re, real legalistic about it. The time lapse, we, we do know, all right. If it says there's 77s, we know there's 77s. It's just trying to pinpoint those to a date that we recognize could give us some slippage. You know, the, the, the time frame won't change, but the, where it sits in our timeline might be off, off here or there. And anyway, so I thought, well, why did he divide it into seven sevens and 62 sevens? What happens, what event happens at the end of seven sevens or at the end of 49 years? So that's why I counted forward to see, well, what year would that be? It would be about 395 or 396. Well, if you have your big timeline with you you don't need to pull it out but you would realize that that's in the intertestamental period it's after the old testament ends and before the new testament begins so we don't have scripture to go look at to tell us what was going on so i pull out my big timeline you know and the big timeline shows that the old testament prophecy ended at 397 bc I also found that date in, you know, several other older scholarly books that say, you know, Malachi's prophecy took you through 397 BC, 396 B.C. It ended in 397 B.C. In more recent scholarly work, they don't date Malachi to that period. They date him somewhat earlier. So, you know, I said, well, that, that makes some sense, but doesn't feel exactly right. But it's an, it's an option. The other, the one that most modern scholars come down on is that it most likely took 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem in its entirety. Because it says it would be re- rebuilt with a plaza, with a moat. It would be rebuilt under times of distress. In other words, their neighbor, neighbors would be withholding material, sabotaging the work. So I think that probably makes sense. We just don't have a scriptural record that it took 49 years to rebuild the temple. But I, that, that makes intuitive sense to me that that must be what that means. If it was all that important to our understanding of the end times, God would make it clear to us. So I take it to mean it's not it, it was important to perhaps Daniel and the Jews at that time, but it pro- and the people who lived through that 49 years probably has no bearing whatsoever on the end time prophecy. Okay, So the next thing you want to do is take a look at the where the next 62 sevens take us and i have a handout for you actually I have two handouts i'll pass them both directions one of them is a timeline that is just provided so you can kind of jot notes and stuff and the other one is a handout that's called the timing of the first 69 sevens and we're going to look at that we're, we're obviously in a prophecy in Daniel that's going to require us to work a little harder. This is not just a story. OK? This one is some hardcore prophecy. And we're going to have to do a little brain work, And unfortunately, even though it's not even eight in the morning, we're going to have to do some math. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> OK. does everybody have it? OK. Take a look at the timeline and let's just kind of talk through it the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem occurred as we just now saw in March of 445 BC there are 49 years until potentially the rebuilding of Jerusalem was completed or whatever it was that happened are you seeing where I am on the timeline okay then there's going to be Another 434 years until the Messiah prints. Okay? Now it doesn't say, it just says until the Messiah. It doesn't say until he comes, until he's born, until he comes into Jerusalem, until he dies, until he comes the second time. It just flat doesn't say. It, tell, it says until the Messiah. Okay? So we're left to try to figure out from history what, what was meant. All right. But obviously, it does mean the advent of the Messiah of some sort. You know, sometime, some we would expect this timeline to fall sometime during Christ's first coming. All right. Then, there's a time skip. Now, there could have been a time skip between the first set of sevens and the 62 sevens, right? Because there was a prophetic definition there. It is possible there was a time skip there, and, and we just don't know what it was. Okay. Most um, people, most scholars believe they ran right together. Okay, those first two ran serially, the first seven and 62 sevens, because we actually do know pretty much when Jesus was here on earth. And the timeline works out that way. And then after a humongous time skip, thousands of years, we come to the last seven. And we're going to find out that that last seven is all about the Antichrist and the tribulation. And that it ends with the second coming of Christ. Okay. So this prophecy, just like all the rest of them in Daniel, fits perfectly with all the rest of the visions. And remember, this angel had come to tell Daniel, I'm trying to explain a little bit to you about the timing of these previous visions because you got the timeline down wrong. Okay. So if you add up both the seven sevens and the sixty two sevens, you're going to get. 69 sevens and that's kind of underneath the timeline that's 483 years or 173 880 days now go over and kind of lay side by side the handout the other handout the timing of the first 69 sevens and this is where the math comes in now all you really need to know is on this Timeline we just reviewed. So, if you really don't like math and don't want to get, try to work so hard to understand the exact mathematics involved, you can just zone out here. But, but I'm going to take you through it because it is remarkable. If we took, start at the, at the beginning, we see that 69 times 7 is 483 years, right? Okay. If we say that that is modern years, as in 365 and a quarter day years, Okay, we would say 400, you would count that and you would, and the way you would count the timeline is you would say, okay, I'm going to take 445 to get to your zero, okay, to the crossover of BC to AD. Well, then I put on your timeline for you, I did a little count there at the bottom where it, see where it says 4, 3, 2, 1, and then there's supposed to be another one. It didn't print. One, two, three, four. There is no year zero. Okay. It should say four, three, two, one, one, two, three, four. That's because there is no zero year. So if you, if you count and you cross over the, the switch from BC to AD, you have to subtract a year. I mean, you have to add a year. All right. So if we take... The 445 years, and we add a year, we're going to end up with 39 years left over to get to the 483. That would put us in AD 39. Well, that's too late for the first advent of Jesus. We know he was gone before then. All right? Well, fortunately, we've studied scripture. And we know that a biblical year can be 360 days. Right. We looked at how that was in Scripture in Genesis and and it's in other places. It's in Revelation. We'll get there. That is commonly called a prophetic year. okay, to distinguish it from a calendar year. So the next thing we do when we see that the, you know, modern men's years didn't work, we go to a prophetic year and say, well, what if the angel was talking about 360 day years? If you multiply 483 times 360 days, you get 173, 880 days. Okay? So all I've done is take the years, make it into 360 days, so that I can then convert the days back into modern years to f- see where that falls on the timeline. Okay? Well, if you convert it back, you get 476 years and 21 days. All right? Now, If you take 476 years that we need to go, and you count beginning in 445 B.C., you get 31 years, but then you have to add a year for the crossover. That gets you to A.D. 32, very possibly the exact year that Jesus was crucified, and the exact month he was crucified in Nisan. That's when Passover falls. Okay, and that, and we know, though we don't know the exact day that decree was issued, we know it was issued in the month of Nisan. That's recorded in scripture. Now, if you do any study on this at all, virtually every scholar refers to Sir Robert Anderson's chronology. He did the definitive work. He calculated it to the day using astronomy. Now, since his time, there have been other people who've come behind him. There have been more scientific discoveries, and most people, and, and they say, "Well, we need to shift it this way or that way a day, okay?" But this prophecy works to the day. So and who's crucified in March, April? And... Yes. Now let me walk you through Sir Robert Anderson's calculations. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it looks like a lot, but it's really not. What he said. That the decree by Artaxerxes would have been dated the first day of Nisan. Okay. That's an assumption and that's why there's a little question mark here on the timeline. We don't know exactly what day. He says it would have been the first. That would have been March 14th. If you then count 173,880 days and I've shown you how to count it. You take the 365 days. Then you add the leap years that you need in there for the quarter days. Okay. And then you add a day for the inclusive counting of March 14th. Remember to count from the beginning of the time period because this is Jewish counting. It's not Babylonian counting. It's Jewish counting. It's godly counting. So it would have been included the first day and the last day. That gets you to 173,857 days. That means you need 23 more days. That, if you count 23 days from the first day, from the day you end up when you count these yearly days, it gets you to April 6th, A.D. 32. That would have been the 10th of Nisan, by calendar day. So according to Sir Robert Anderson's calculations, if the decrease was issued the first day of Nisan in 445 B.C., it would have ended on the 10th of Nisan, A.D. 32. Then he went... To scripture and reconstructed what would have been happening on that day, because that day fell during Holy Week. Passover fell on the 14th of Nisan that year, which was a Thursday. John 12 verse 1 says Jesus went to visit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus six days before the Passover. That would have been the 8th of Nisan, if you count, according to Anderson, but he didn't count inclusively, so I think it would have been the 9th. If you count it inclusively. That was a Sabbath. The next day, John 12:12, 12, 12 he's, Jesus in, entered Jerusalem triumphantly as King and Messiah. That was essentially Palm Sunday. What day is the day after the 9th the of Nisan? It's the 10th of Nisan, April 6th, A.D. 32. The exact day of the end of the 173,880 days prophesied in the book of Daniel. For the coming of Messiah the Prince it's <laughs> isn't that amazing and you will find if you um, study this at all that as people have gone back just to study the life of Christ to try to figure out where he fits we know that he was baptized in the 15th year of Tiberius you know, so that can be set pretty, pretty well you know, people can set when, when his ministry started how old he was, it, he was about 30, so we don't know exactly when he was born. Okay? We have been taught, generally as Christians, he had a three-year ministry. That's because in the scripture there's a reference to three Passovers during his uh, ministry. There could have been a fourth Passover. You could read it where there, there was a fourth one. You could read it where you know some of these events happened on the same Passover and were recorded and look like two different Passovers so some people think his ministry was shorter some people think it was longer so one way that astronomers have gone back is they said well when does the new moon fall on a day such that Passover would be on a Thursday okay and when they do that they say well you can you can use 33 AD and you can use AD you know 31 or But they say you can't use A.D. 32 because they don't see it lining up properly. On the other hand, you can find other people out there who say, yeah, but you didn't take into account this, this and this about the Hebrew calendar not being accurate back then when the scriptures were being written. That they may have thought it started on, you know the 10th of Nisan or whatever it was. And really the new moon was a couple of days earlier or a day earlier or whatever. So because of the fuzziness around what kind of dates were they using when the scripture was written, you can't rule out AD 32. All right. And I think you can rule it very definitely in based on prophecy in scripture and in Daniel. So just so you know, all sides of the issue there. Okay. Pretty. I, I want to know how long this time skip is. <laughs> <laughs> is that in my notes? <laughs> I, you know what? I can't tell you how long the time skip is, but I can tell you how to recognize when the last seven years starts. That's part of what we're learning is how to recognize when we get to the last seven years. See, to me, the miracle in this, all of this, is that you can even get, figure this out. Yeah. That you can even get this close to mm-hmm. it. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yes, it's just because when you see this, you have confidence that this is right, and it's just our our counting of the calendars that's probably off here and there. You know, so it, because by the time a serious student has gotten to this point, you know who's right and who's wrong. <laughs> well, and over a span of 480 years. That, exactly. To be able to get that such point. a tiny margin of error. And yeah. look how far down the road we are from there. Yeah. 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 Pretty amazing. That also gives us an indication of how we should count years as we go through Daniel and Revelation. Okay? It gives us further assurance from Scripture, from the, where we feel, see the fulfillment of these prophecies, that we need to be using a prophetic year of 360 days. Okay? Let's go on to uh, what he says, ha- what happens after the 62 weeks. Okay, so now he's going to tell us what happens after that. After 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Well, that's just typical prophecy in Daniel. They don't use a lot of words and they cover a lot of material. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to look at that in littler pieces. But what's the first thing? That when you look at your timeline, that happens at the end of the 62 sevens when the Messiah comes. We've just seen it referring to his coming into Jerusalem. What happens like the next day? What happens immediately after Jesus enters Jerusalem? Within a day or two after he enters Jerusalem, he is arrested and crucified. Jesus is arrested and crucified. So when it says after the 62 weeks, the Messiah Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, that happened. That absolutely happened. Jesus was rejected by the people he came to save. And more importantly, he felt very keenly a separation from God. At his darkest moment, he was separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went where no one, none of us would want to go. If you just read this term, the Messiah is cut off, certainly it does mean what we just talked about. He was crucified, had nothing, cut off from God. But there is an even deeper meaning to this. If you look at the Hebrew verb, and I think I put it in your, hand, I, in your scripture references, I kind of stuck in some of the Strong's references as well. The word cut off means to cut off, cut down, or cut asunder by implication to destroy or consume. Specifically, to covenant. That is, make an alliance or bargain originally by cutting flesh and passing between the pieces. Let's look at the... At Genesis 15, verse 5 through 18. This is God's covenant with Abraham. And he took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And God said to Abram, so shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And Abram said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So God said to him, Bring me a three year old heifer, and a three year old female goat, and a three year old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then Abram brought all these to God, cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, terror and a great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between... The halves of the animals. The pieces of the animals. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying. To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt. As far as the great river. The river Euphrates. So here you have God's covenant. The formal. Official. Legal. Covenant. With his people. With Abraham. Establishing him as a nation. Establishing them as the chosen people. The covenant was sealed in the way that was recognized in that time by cutting animals in half and passing between them. God passed between them. When it says in Daniel the Messiah will be cut asunder as in the covenant where animals are cut. He was issuing in the new covenant. That is a very specialized term. And it was foreseen in Daniel. Can you imagine Daniel's confusion? When he heard that the Messiah would be cut into pieces and have nothing. How distressed he must have been. No wonder he couldn't understand any of this. The next phrase in the prophecy introduces a new character, the prince who is to come and his people. So this is the part in verse 26 where it says, after the Messiah is cut off and has nothing, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, there's two, I think, valid ways of looking at this prophecy and and. And I, I waffle between the two of them, and maybe they're both right, but but I'm going to tell you both of them. Um, the first way is that most scholars believe that this refers to the complete destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. when the Romans came. Titus was the general who came at the head of a huge army of 60,000 troops and utterly destroyed Jerusalem. They Crucified, according to, to some of the historical records, so many men that they ran out of wood. More, Josephus says more than a million people perished. It was horrific. The first Holocaust. The first Holocaust. It was a significant event. It was all Jews that they killed? No, it was not all Jews, but it was pretty much wiped them out. Yeah, it was, it was mostly Jews. In Jerusalem. Okay. But they killed everybody. One of the things that this prophecy in Daniel says is that the people of the prince who is to come. Now the prince who is to come, we're going to find out, is the Antichrist. Okay. We found that out in all the rest of our prophecies, so you can take my word for it. We're fixing to find out this guy is the Antichrist. But, but it says it doesn't say the Antichrist is going to destroy Jerusalem. It says the people of the Antichrist will destroy the Jerusalem. A lot of people have looked at this and said, aha, that means the Antichrist is the Pope. (laughs) I think that's a stretch. (laughs) Um, For one thing, even saying that he comes from the city of Rome is a stretch. Because we know from our study of Daniel that when... God is talking in these prophecies. He's talking about that whole fourth kingdom, right? That we're calling, you know, the Roman Empire or the, the imperialist empire, because clearly the Roman Empire was just the beginning of it. And we already know that the Antichrist was prophesied, prophesied in Daniel to come out of the Greek portion of that empire. Remember, it was a horn rising up out of the, the Greeks. So. I take this phrase to mean that that the Antichrist will come from these peoples of this imperialist empire, most specifically from the peoples of the portion covered by the Greek empire. But in this day and age, I wouldn't say that means he comes from Greece. Okay. Remember that Greek Empire, you had the Seleucids, you had Turkey, you had Syria, you had all kind of other areas, Egypt, all kind of other areas in there. So to get real literal about it and say he has to come from Rome and therefore he's the Pope is like way out in left field as far as I'm concerned. However, the fact that this prophecy could refer to the destruction of... Of Jerusalem by this army of Romans who certainly were part of the imperialist empire. Now that's a valid interpretation of this, of this prophecy. And that's where most people come down. That's what most people believe. I think we have to keep our minds open to the possibility that that's not the destruction being referred to. That there may be another destruction of Jerusalem. Associated with the people of the Antichrist as we approach the end times. Okay, I just want to throw that out that that the way that you read this verse, either it could be either one of those things. Absolutely. Another decree could be coming in. Exactly. You know. And she said another decree. There could be. In other words, this seventy this seventy years seventy A.D. doesn't in any of this timeline anywhere. Okay? All we know, all we know is that sometime after the Messiah is cut off, Jerusalem gets destroyed. Now, most people think that it was in 70 AD, which was right here near this part of the timeline. I'm saying it could just as easily be over here in this part of the timeline. Okay? I'm not denying that it was de- destroyed in 70 AD. I'm just saying there could be another one coming. Okay. I'm, I'm a little bit confused about Antichrist Mm-hmm. Rising out of the Greek Empire. Okay. Um, I thought the Greek Empire ended with the rise of the Roman Republic. It did. But look because at the... Part, I mean, that Greece is part of... Of the imperialist empire, yes. That's right. Of the surviving fourth so beast. Is Britain and Scandinavia. Yeah. And Absolutely. And Germany and Italy. Absolutely. But think about this. Does the Roman Empire as such exist anymore? The Roman Empire? No. No. It, the Greek well, look at the four. It, he rises. It's, the prophecy says he rises out of the, one of the four divisions of the Greek Empire. That's in that little purple part. If you have your big timeline, look at the four divisions of that Greek Empire. What are they? The first one is Egypt and Palestine. Do those exist today? Yes. Syria. Does that exist today? Yes. Greece and Macedonia. Does that exist? Yes. Thrace or Asia Minor. Mm-hmm. Does that exist? Mm-hmm. It is remarkable to me that all four of those divisions survived with those names and with geographic limits all the way into modern times. I think they survived so that that prophecy can be fulfilled. Now, yeah. that's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> She's worried about. <laughs> <laughs> now we know the real question. <laughs> you're, you're a hoot. <laughs> yeah. He could come from the lineage. It could be his heritage. There's nothing restrictive so about could, the language. He could, he could live in Britain. That, I mean, that's, right. Liberal, that's right. That's right. People are all over the world now. That's right. Who and Greek, That's right. So I wouldn't. I think that we are going to know enough about the Antichrist from these studies that there's going to be a whole lot of indications that will allow us to identify him. But when he comes, he will clearly have some connection to those those four. Because it says so in Scripture. All right. We look at the next phrase. The next phrase says that the time of the destruction of the city is is one of extreme violence it says the end of the city and the sanctuary will come with a flood even to the end there will be war desolations are determined i looked up flood flood can mean the literal you know deluge but when it's used figuratively as in a prophecy like this it can also just mean overwhelming just like we would use The NLV version uses the word like a flood. Like a flood. That's that's an interpretation just kind of thrown into your translation. Um, So you can take it either way. Uh, I think it makes the most sense to take it as not a literal flood, but as a, you know, overwhelming destruction. That certainly does fit the 70 AD destruction. We know from chapter 8 verse 14 that the holy place is going to be restored after 2300 evenings and mornings remember that so that would either be six years and four months if you count that as 2300 days or it's three years and two months if you count an evening and a morning as one day okay there's more information in the prophecy of Zechariah that confirms that Jerusalem will not be destroyed forever so even if the destruction of jerusalem occurs at the time of the, near the time of the antichrist as is possible we know it will be rebuilt because if you look at the at what we've got from zechariah it talks about in zechariah 14 verse 1 that the day is coming where all the nations will gather against jerusalem in battle the city will will be captured The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. The rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And and so when Jerusalem is under terrible, terrible attack and has been captured, okay, and presumably there's some destruction associated with that, then what happens? The Lord will go forth to fight against these nations. As when he fights on the day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle. From east to west. By a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north. And the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. You will flee just as you fled before the earthquake. In the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, that it will come about that at evening time there will be light. In that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, the other half towards the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter." And the Lord God will be king over all the earth. In that day, Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from gebel to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise. Okay, that, that just almost implies a rise from the ashes, doesn't it? Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. People will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now this will be the plague which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Now, that is the second coming, okay? That is the Lord coming in great wrath to defend Jerusalem against her enemies and establish what we will come to find out will be a thousand year reign on earth of Jesus the Messiah. So we can see that Jerusalem will definitely undergo trauma during this period. But will be rebuilt, will be will rise, and will be established as God's capital. So then this whole bit about the end will come in a flood, and even to the end there will be war, that starts to make some sense in that context. All right. Whether you believe that the prophecy referred to the destruction in A D seventy or to a later destruction Definitely, in the end, there's going to be war, and wars will continue to the end, and he's talking about this last period of tribulation, the last seven of the 77s. All right, these last bits relate to the last seven. It starts in verse 27 where he says, And he, talking about the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Now, the Antichrist is going to make a firm covenant with the many. If you look up the, the word that's translated many there, it just means many. It means abundant, lots of. It, but it also has a great deal of connotation in there about master, about, about um, prince, See, the mighty, the more. The, it means, the to me, the leaders, Okay, to try to clarify, well, which one is he talking about here? I went back and looked at where the many is used in scripture. This is not in your handouts because I did it after I'd already printed the handouts. In Isaiah 53, verse 10. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And it goes on to continue the prophecy of Christ being crucified. So here's one reference that that refers to the many as the population for which Christ bore sin. Then in Romans 5, verse 15 through 21. But the free gift is not like the transgression, like the sin. For if by the sin of the one, that is Adam, the many died... Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on one hand, the judgment arose from one sin re- resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many sins resulting in justification. For if by the sin of one death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as though, as through one sin there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What verse that? 19, Romans 5:19. And also there was a reference in in verse 15 to the many. Even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that sin would increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Once again, through Jesus Christ. The many refers to the population that Jesus made righteous by his act. The population to whom grace was given. And there's one more place outside of Daniel that this phrase is used. And that's in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 through 33. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God just as I also please all men in all things not seeking my own profit but the profit of the many so that they may be saved so here is Paul picking up on that same theme that he was sent to minister to the many so that they may be saved All right, that's it that's the places in the Bible that that Phrase is used now you may, in some translations you may find one or two others but the meanings are consistent and certainly in the New American Standard Version these were the only ones outside of Daniel um, and uh, where this, this phrase was used and outside of Daniel in Revelation. So when the Antichrist is going to make a firm covenant with the many, almost every scholar I read said that meant the Jews. I think they're missing it (laughs) okay I think if you look at scripture it's a much broader term and I think it means the believers as well as the unbelievers okay (laughs) because it's the scripture referred to the people that Jesus Christ came to save which is all of us right. Mm-hmm. It could be all it could be all of us, and mm-hmm. I think then it takes you back to that Hebrew where it talked about the masters and the princes and the you know mm-hmm. some of the other meanings. I think the Antichrist will make covenants with many nations, mm-hmm. the leaders of many nations and that will govern all the all whole bunch. The <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think that the Antichrist will come and make a firm covenant with the many, which I take to be the leaders of many nations. Okay, based on my understanding, reading of the Hebrew word the many, the meaning behind that, which can mean not only plenteous but also the princes and the masters and the stewards, and also from reading the other scripture that use that term. Do all these references to one world economies make you nervous? I, I think that it is a sign of the end times. I think it is clearly the closer and closer we move towards fewer and fewer world governments, the closer we are moving to those ten kingdoms, which are a predecessor to the rise of the Antichrist. Now, believers will fall away. Yes, that is definitely. That's what you're saying. Well, I think that that if, let's say that there is, that one of the ten kingdoms is North America. You know, maybe it's Canada, the U.S. and Mexico all combined or whatever. You know, one of the, I believe that our president will make a covenant with the Antichrist for world peace. I think this is a covenant for world peace, personally. It doesn't say that, but I think that's what it is. I think that that's what that covenant is about. And I think that, that we... We as believers will be subject to that covenant because we're Americans. There are also going to be unbelievers subject to that covenant. And just to give you in a nutshell, if Christians are raptured before the tribulation starts, before the Antichrist actually kicks this off with the covenant, there's still, God has made provision for there to be 144,000 Jews who rise up to minister to the world during that time frame. And they will bring many to Christ. They will witness and bring many to Christ. So there will continue to be believers during this time frame. But they will be living through the great tribulation. Okay. So we'll get to all that and discuss the pros and the cons and the, you know, what we think about that stuff when we get to Revelation. Alright, we probably should stop here. There's just a little bit more, but next week when we do chapter 10, we will go through the entire chapter 10. Because all of chapter 10 is just an introduction to the last prophecy in the book of Daniel.